This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. It is the hidden war that has changed warfare forever. And it's happening right now in our lives. In one of the central figures in this campaign, a U.S. military veteran describes it this way in a captivating new book. He writes, My job was to hunt down the most dangerous terrorists in the world. If I was chasing you, you never saw me. I was a shadow. That man is my guest today, and welcome, Brett Vilakovich. Brett, welcome here. Bill, thanks for having me. So you, along with Christopher Stewart, a writer for the Wall Street Journal, have produced an amazing book. Thank you. It's called Drone Warrior, and I just want to say congratulations to you. And I've, I, Listen, I've got a hundred questions, and a lot of them, frankly, just come from the first couple chapters in your book. No, I appreciate it. You know, this book is years in the making, so it's it's a great time. Excited to be able to, to have this see the light of day. So b- before I dive into where I want to go, give me perspective on your life. Where did you grow up? Why did you join the military? Sure. I mean, I grew up in Texas. Um, I had, you know, joined, uh, before I joined the Army, I went to college. I was going to University of Houston, and then 9-11 happened. And I think, just like a lot of us, it kind of changed our perspective on the world, and especially me as a young, you know, 17-year-old old just you know sitting there wondering what I'm going to do with the rest of my life I really you know it really had a strong impact on me and so I decided to to join the army and, and serve the country in the best way I, I knew how and in that that case it was it was to do mm. intelligence analysis and so I joined specifically to go into the intelligence corps so you were 17 years old during 9-11 then we had 2001 yep yep um. Are you giving away secrets in this book? Absolutely not. I think the, the people around me knew that the most important thing uh, to me was to protect the men and women uh, in uniform and protect any secrets from from getting out into the public space. And for me, you know, it was an out of body experience to even talk to, to talk about this stuff. And um, I made it very clear to the team around me, and that's why it took so long to get this book out. Is what was supposed to be a ninety day process of government vetting ended up taking a twenty two month. Uh, process. And mm. that's because it had to go through all these different layers of um, intelligence agencies and organizations that were, you know, had their sights on it. And, you know, uh, it was the right thing to do. And, and for me, I wanted to make sure that the U.S. government was very comfortable uh, with what I'm saying. And, and you know, and even with some of these articles that I've been writing, I've even had them approve that just to be mm-hmm. extra cautious because I would never want to do anything inappropriate. I think the reason for that, I mean, just recently, we shot down an Iranian drone, correct, in Syria? And yep. so this is this is spreading. That, that That's the point. That That's why I ask you that question. But you, just so our audience understands, you, you weren't in a warehouse in Nevada, which is usually where we associate the pilots who fly the drones. You were in theater. You were on the ground in places like Iraq. 
working out of what you describe as a box. Exactly. So what, what's I think the box. So a lot of people tend to associate, you know, drone strikes or the drone program with these pilots that are sitting back there uh, in Nevada and um, they're sitting in trailers and things like that. But there's this whole other ecosystem that exists within within how how this works. And my job was actually to go closer to the fight so that I could be as, as close to it as possible and and be able to soak up all the different intelligence information that was coming into to our area to allow us to um, pinpoint the, these guys. And so I was able to actually utilize uh, the UAVs, the, the, the pilots, the, the Air Force pilots and the sensor operators would be flying for um, over top of targets that I was asking them to fly over. And then that video would be transmitted to our our box, which is essentially you know a makeshift uh, office that we can set up on the fly because we constantly have to be moving and so pursuing a, these targets. Is it a trailer or what is that? It can be a trailer. It could be a hotel room. It could be a, a, an actual, you know, office. It could be the, the box is more, you know, metaphorical in that we always are moving uh, in, in a, in a con, at a constant pace. And so we might set up a box, you know, in in Baghdad, or we maybe go to Mosul, or we, we may be, you know, in a, in another country. And the whole idea is that we have all of the information and t- and tools and some of the best and brightest minds in the in this business in one spot that allows allows us to then be so inter- interconnected um, that we can hunt these guys very, very fast. Uh, because, because they move. They move, They move, and um, we have to be as mobile and as fast as they are and stay one step ahead. And keep the heat on, as you talk about a lot in your book. Let me read this, Brett. September 2009, and I was in the box. A secretless, windowless bunker at the edge of an undisclosed military base south of Mosul, Iraq, not far from the Syrian border. Staring at eight flat-screen TVs on the wall. Stacked in two rows of four, the worst Best Buy you've ever seen. Right. That was your life. That was my life. And, uh, you know, looking at death from a distance. But at the same time, there was really no disconnecting from it. You know, a lot of people tend to think, well, you're sitting behind a computer. You're staring at these guys. You know, how do you, you know, you, you can't understand what, what death is like. And the truth is drone technology gives us this ability to look at things in different ways than you would even with, ha- with having that person in front of you. And sometimes I would have two or three predator drones staring at one uh, target at the same time. So I'm seeing different angles and I'm seeing different views of it. And I'm really, even though we're hunting some of the worst of the worst, there's still humanity in that, in, in that you, you start to see what these guys are doing on a daily basis. They're taking their kids to the, to the store. They're going in and, you know, going shopping. And then, you know, and then the other time you see them doing the things that they don't want you to see. And, and it's an interesting thing to be a part of, to, to never before in the history of wars, have we really been able to know so much about our enemy and that, uh, you know, after a while, you, you know, you, you kind of start to, to, to see things in a different light. Mm. You also write, during this hunt for Saddam Hussein, so that's 2003, right? That's 13, Mm -hmm. 14 years ago. After the invasion of Iraq, most people were fighting over a single predator drone for the search. I added the word drone just for clarification there. Thank you. And today, you can have three at one time stacked at different altitudes. And it's only 14 years later. Right. And so that should tell people who read this book and and others that are trying to understand how quickly drone technology has proliferated in that the U.S. military 
needed these things early on in the war, but there wasn't enough to go around. I mean, these the Northrop Grumman's of the world couldn't make enough drones for U.S. forces to get their hands on them, but we also saw how important it was and how it was allowing us to be on the offense instead of the defense and not be reactionary. And so over the course of, you know, 10 years of, of these wars, we started seeing the benefits of, the, of this tech. And so more and more drones started going out into the battlefields. You know, one of the, the very first things, one of the very first drones I saw was a small drone called a Raven, which is a, a typical, you know, U.S. Army, you know, infantry light type of uh, UAV that you can basically just throw up in the air on a moment's notice and see, you know, maybe five kilometers away from you what's what's ahead. And to me, when I saw this thing, it, it was it was mind blowing. You know, it's flying over this terrain and it's it's able to give us this this eye in the sky. And only the best units in in the U.S. military were allowed to have that because it was very expensive technology. Well, now I mean, just about any infantry battalion that's out there, they've got these small portable drones, and uh, and so this the the tech is spreading so fast fast that you can see why now you don't there really are not many operations that take place around the world without a drone either uh, watching over it before uh, during or after no, the operation it's like cover right right as a former delta intelligence analyst you you can probably size up to history you mentioned 911 why has this been able to advance the way it has and i, I believe the answer is satellite technology and I also believe it's 16 years of war in Afghanistan. And we ruled the night and we ruled the sky from the very first hour of that war. And 16 years later of drone use and satellite perfection and targeting and GPS, what has that given the United States military? It's given them a capability unlike any wars before. I mean, and it, it will be the way that we fight wars in the future. And just have knowledge is power, right? So, you know, when businesses use data to drive their conclusions, you know, same thing in the, the targeting world. We're using intelligence data to drive our conclusions, and therefore we need more intelligence information. And when you, you're adding satellites and drones and sources and all these special tools that these organizations have uh, to refine that information, it gives you this almost, uh, you know, what, what some might describe as this godlike power to be all-knowing. And we know so much about these guys, um, and, and drones are kind of that missing piece because we're using them to then confirm or deny our information, to vet it, and then pinpoint people to a specific place on a map. And without that, that, that separate angle of it, um, you know, we, we would just have the information for the sake of having it. We wouldn't be able to mm. do anything about it. So it was rumored that Osama bin Laden crawled out of Afghanistan in late 2001. And did it by hiding at night, by digging ditches and putting palm fronds over the ditch and making sure the drone from overhead could not spot him. That's one theory, yeah. Is that true? Um, you know, if you talk to guys that were there, uh, there were some other books that were written um, by, by some former military folks that say that it was basically the local tribes that actually let, let him escape. Okay. And, and if if that theory is accurate, just for the sake of our conversation, okay. is that still possible today? Or has our technology advanced so far past that? Well, there's so many different sensors on a, a Predator or a Reaper drone. Um, and a lot of the sensors that are on there allow us to do things like, you know, basically get heat signatures and do thermal imaging and 
and do night vision. And so, you know, crawling crawling through the mount the mountainside would while might be great for somebody that's looking through the you know, rifle scope. Uh, when you're looking through the drone, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's that's actually one of the the biggest benefits of. Uh, something like a predator is that you can you can own the night and you can see things for miles. A lot of times we can see things better at night than we can during the day because when you think about uh, you know people are are asleep and not moving as much and so you can pick up these. We're looking for these small anomalies uh, on the screen and trying to pick up things that others wouldn't be able to see. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you know people's heat or uh, you know at nighttime you can see things a lot better. So even quite frankly, I talk about it in the book too. During the daytime we would actually switch. To to a nighttime camera, even during you know noon, we would switch. It was that to night- good. Was, that's how good it was. Yeah, you know, I was in Kandahar during the early days of the war on terror, and I was there with a guy by the name of General James Mattis, and I, I remember the time how he would tell us how you ruled the night. The U.S. military did, mm-hmm. and nobody could compare. But that was night vision goggles. Right. That was, I think, what you call NVG, correct? And this is so far removed from that. It's, it's taken a quantum leap, and that's the point. And some of the claims you make in the book here are, I'll just get you to describe some of them, because they're, they're getting headlines. You believe you had the current leader of ISIS, Baghdadi, in the crosshairs, and the State Department got in your way. How come? Well, when I, what I'm specifically referring to is guys within my organization that were uh, basically stayed behind to clean up what was left of the Islamic State of Iraq, and this is basically as U.S. troops were leaving. And so there's that, but then there's this larger picture, which is the point that I'm trying to make in all that is we had ISIS at uh, or the beginning of ISIS, which was just ISI at the time, at the brink of extinction, right? And you know, soldiers lost their lives putting away tens of thousands of these Islamic State of Iraq fighters in these prisons. But then, you know, we had them to the point where it looked from the outside to people that weren't in our, our organizations that could see this daily intelligence that these guys were done. They were finished. But the small, you know, organizations that I work for that looked, that lived this day in and day out, we knew how evil these people were. We knew that you, you can't just, uh, you know, stop the pressure on it. They're going to, they're going to come back. And when U.S. troops were pulled out, it really made it very difficult um, for us to finish them off. And I think that's, that's the point I'm trying to make is that can happen to any administration. And if guys are not listening to people like me that are that are seeing these things on a daily basis that were, are in these positions, still hunting these guys down, you know, then, then we've already lost the war. Interesting, because I heard the claim and I thought, well, perhaps there were civilians in the area. And they said back off. No. In this specific specific case, we're talking about U.S. troops were told to go home. So uh, in, in, in the book, we talk about how very quickly if we were to identify a target and we were able to – we wanted to go extract him or capture him, the assault force, the, you know, the, 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 the trigger pullers would go in and actually conduct a raid on the house, capture the guy, and, and we'd be done with it. And we would you know, interrogate him and get information and, and go from there. But in this case, there was no assault force. There was only – Intel guys, so they're following. They're using drones to follow, and, and, and they find Baghdadi, and then they have nothing that they can do about it because 
the troops were told to go home, except for the guys that were still out there hunting with, with drones. And so the, the issue that happened was this, um, this level of authority, this level of approvals that had to take place for a local assault force to be able to conduct those raids. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, using local Iraqis to actually go out and conduct a raid instead of U.S. forces who are trained in the best of the best to be able to do this. I mean, these guys are superhuman mm-hmm. at, at doing these things. And so it was this bureaucracy now that had been created because troops were told to go home and the guys out there in the field could not do what they were trained to do, which is immediately take them down. Nigeria, Boko Haram, right? They kidnapped the girls from the school and you claim the Nigerian government did nothing. When you had shown them evidence that you knew where they were, Is, is that accurate? Absolutely. So the guys that were so why would the Nigerian government not allow you to take action? Well, one, it wasn't our job. It wasn't our job to take action. So the guys that were involved in this mission, which was a, a lot of a lot of folks that were involved in um, in, in finding Understood. the girls, so, so Nigerian and, government could have right. And and I want to make it clear, like there's nothing that I do I, that I do alone. So you know, there's a, there's there's many people involved. But what what I what I when the Nigerians were told that these girls were there, and it wasn't all of them. It was it was just a por- it was a you know a portion of them. Um, that had been found because they'd been split up. You describe a large group. Right. A large group, which had been, you know, it was, at the time, I think it was over 200 that had been kidnapped. So this was a, a large chunk of those girls because we knew that they had been split up. The Nigerians didn't do anything primarily because they couldn't, um, in my opinion, because the territory that this was in was heavily controlled by Boko Haram and they were too worried about going in there and, and getting killed. Huh. And they're not going to ask the U.S. government to go do the, their job that their people are are, are, are saying you know, we need help on, you know, fixing. Mm-hmm. So the issue is, yes, they were told they were told that they were there and, and they, they did nothing, whether that, you know, it's a lack in the capability. And that's why I talk how important it is that it, without, without people on the ground or without a missile on a drone to actually have a finishing capability, all this information is worth nothing. It doesn't matter. You also write about mistakes because they do happen. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of the job that you did as a drone warrior? For me, it was this feeling of... uh, like the weight of the world was on my shoulders because I had this power to 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 do good, and not many people had the um, ability to actually to, to to wield that type of power. And this mental burden of knowing that if your team does not find this guy, that he's going to live another day to to hurt innocent people or to to come after Americans. And for me, it was this. I, I didn't sleep doing this work, and the people around me, we, we we didn't sleep. I would come back from these deployments, you know, fifty to sixty pounds lighter. My face would be ghostly white. You know, they refer to me as Casper because I lost so much weight and and was so stressed out. And and guys guys would have beds built next to their computers so that they wouldn't have to worry about walking away from the drone video feed because they didn't want to miss a thing. You know, we would have the drone video feeds piped into our our TV screens when we the few hours that we. Had actually did sleep so we would switch from fox news to the live video feed of, of the target that we're we're staring at from the drone and going to sleep you know watching these guys at night and so when you're doing that over and over and over again you become obsessed with 
this feeling that you're you're the guy that America has entrusted to do this job and, and this responsibility uh, you know that's 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 heavy to have especially with someone at my age that was brought into it fairly young and given mm-hmm. such an incredible responsibility were you 25 then I think is that what you wrote? yeah I started out started out at 25 you also write this drone warfare will continue to evolve as groups like ISIS start getting their hands on commercial drone technology and attaching grenades and bombs of them in order to conduct their own drone strikes. That perhaps might be inevitable. Um, well, as you, they're already doing it, essentially. Yeah, as, as you characterize it today, is it is it ISIS that will be the next threat? Or is it Russia? Or is it China? Because I imagine everyone is chasing the same technology. No, it's it's a great it's a great point. I think we're already seeing groups like ISIS modify consumer drones, and one of the things that I deal with a lot now is actually helping uh, figure out ways to combat that uh, because you know some of the same drones that uh, you can buy at Walmart are the ones that they're using and modifying and giving these non-state actors essentially a, a drone strike capability that arguably could be even better than the U.S. because they don't have to deal with the same rules uh, that we did. But really what absolutely is concerning our group are countries like Russia and China that they have yet to acquire the same uh, sophisticated tech that the U.S. government has, but it's just a matter of time. And then there's this whole other issue of, well, you know, are they going to be calling uh, some terrorist you know the the way that we might refer to somebody as a terrorist or an enemy would they would they would that be some dissident that they have a problem with and somebody that's actually not uh you know as evil as as we we come to know because of all the information we have and so that is a little bit uh scary uh but there's there's still a long way from getting anywhere close to the but type it, of US government tech so you we have the advantage is what you're saying there. we have well, so yeah. here's here's the interesting thing we have the advantage when it comes to military government stuff but we are losing the war when it comes to uh, the consumer drones uh, that that are out there. The, the, Chi- so? the Chinese probably own, I would say, I'm throwing the summer out there. It might even be higher, but probably 50 to 60 percent of the U.S. drone market is owned by Chinese manufacturers. Like the, the drones that you might see on TV um, or, your, you know, your is friends. Is that for might, a camera or a picture yeah, or a well, video? Or? All kinds of things. I mean, people are using them to take photos of, of their families, you know, going on vacation. You know, I we even used them once. We built this uh, drone cocktail bar for a client of ours that wanted us to use drones to mix drinks, shake them, shake them around, and then deliver them to people's tables. And wow, these are made, that's happening. That is happening. <laughs> we put that in a hotel in downtown New York City uh, it, at the Renaissance for this event. It was incredible. Mm. That's a separate story. But at what street is that hotel? Uh, it's midtown. I think it's on the 16th. Okay. Well, it was for I, an I, event. It's not listen, there now. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you know the next one I do. Uh, but no, we we did it in Florida as well for New Year's Eve, um, the Justin Bieber concert. That's unbelievable. But look, the, wow. what, what I'm what trying range. what I'm trying to say is that the, the the Chinese are actually destroying us when it comes to being able to create uh, consumer drone techs, and 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 they have they have the market corner right now. Like even I'm guilty of it. I don't I don't you when I'm using a commercial or consumer drone to do work. I'm using a Chinese one because they're the best. They're hands down the best, mm-hmm. and we have in the in, in 
in the in the U.S. government has the capability to tell the Boeings, to tell the Northrop Grumman's, the Lockheed's to focus on something that would be more commercial or more consumer, but they don't because you know it's all restricted. They're all working on all these classified programs. But just wait. I mean, this technology gap is closing very very quickly, and the fact of the matter is, when you start seeing terrorist groups using the same type of drones that I'm talking about, that you know that that are proliferating across the U.S. that you know you can buy at a Walmart. That's a scary thing, and that's not something that you could just do a few years ago. I mean, this is this is happening now, and and you you have no idea until you take one out and fly one and see how high these things hmm. can go. Just this past week, the Philippines might be the next big hotspot for terrorism. Right? Do we have to cover everywhere? Is it Yemen? Is it Somalia? Is it Libya? Is it Syria? Is it Iraq? Is it Iran? Is it Afghanistan? Is it the Philippines? Is it Indonesia eventually, perhaps? Sadly, and yes. It, it, I you, mean, you, you say yes to that. Yes. I mean, the pro- as much as we, we shouldn't have to, who else is going to do it? I mean, look, the Philippines thing, that's been going the, – the first, the first military organiz- the military unit I uh, supported, I was a young private. I was, at, uh, I was supporting a first special forces group in Fort Lewis, Washington, and the whole, the whole entire th- uh, area that we focused on was Asia. So we, we looked at the Philippines very heavily, and there was the same type of terrorism was taking place right now. There are groups called Abu Sayyaf Group and, you know, Moro Islamic Liberation. Front and all these organizations that pledged allegiance to ISIS, they've been there for they've been there for over for decades. This isn't anything new. Yeah, now yeah. that we label them ISIS, we then say, oh, it's it's no. new. But there's no one uh, else to do anything about it. That's a fair it. point. Entirely legitimate. I, I think here's where the question goes then. If this is the assumed responsibility, then it becomes a question of manpower, it becomes a question of equipment and time. And commitment. You're hands down. I'm in agreement with you. I just know that if what's the alternative? What's the alternative? We let some other countries that that could care less that don't even have anywhere near the type of precision that we have go after these guys. I mean, look at Europe now. Look at all these attacks that are occurring over there. We're so fortunate that we haven't had the the same amount of of attacks here in the U.S. Uh, And that's uh, due in part, I think, to some of the poorest borders that they have over there and the fact that they haven't been fighting these guys as long as we have. And, you know, we don't want to get caught up into all these wars um, because you're right. We only have so many of these targeting units, you know, that I worked in that have this ability mm-hmm. to go after these leaders. But at the same time, I mean, what, what do we do? We just let it keep, you know, masticizing to the point that we have uh, Americans hurt one day. I mean, I, I, don't, I just I don't know the answer to that. I guess. Yeah. General Michael Hayden used to run the CIA and the NSA, and he says Drone Warrior is a must read for anyone who wants to understand the new American way of war. And, Brett, I think you laid it out very well. And it's it's a fascinating topic that at the moment seems like it is boundless. And um, to cap it all off, there will be a movie soon about your book. It's called Drone Warrior, and Brett Velikovich is my guest. And, Brett, thank you for being here today and enlightening us on your life and perhaps what's to come. Bill, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. The book is called Drone Warrior, and I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.